The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have Sierra Kester, licensed counselor. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Welcome, Sierra. Um, we brought you in today to kind of talk about PTS and uh, the effects on our soldiers. But in a bigger sense, you know, we as as veterans come into the museum, what we learn when we start trying to hear their stories, record their stories in here is we, we know that a lot of them suffer from PTS. And, uh, you know, with that comes some responsibility. And, and certainly you want to have an understanding of what it is. But the first thing I want to mention, PTS is not limited to soldiers. And we understand that in your counseling, you counsel police officers, first responders, and veterans and soldiers so and even civilians civilians feel the stress from traumatic events too i was reading the other day that five to seven percent of americans will experience some kind of pts in their life so tell us a little bit about you know pts and and how you know what kind of uh, where do you see it you know and and you know how is it treated these days yeah um i Thank you for kind of opening that up and mentioning I'm not a veteran. I do have a lot of appreciation for everybody that has served and served and continues to serve. Um, I think there are a lot of similarities between first responders and veterans, and that's kind of where I'm really passionate about people that serve and experience the trauma. Um, like you said, also people that are civilians can experience trauma, and even um, things that go unnoticed are included with spouses or family members, parents, children, um, so really, PTS can be found anywhere, and it's kind of um, can be hiding in plain sight sometimes. Um, so sometimes some of the symptoms like inability to sleep or nightmares or flashbacks, um, loss of enjoyment and things they used to really enjoy, um, sometimes those things are really apparent, but also sometimes the signs and symptoms are not so apparent. And um, especially what I see a lot of, it's less apparent maybe to the individual and maybe more apparent to 
um, their loved ones or people around them. So it's really important to kind of just advocate and spread the word for awareness to reach out and help people around you. We, um, you build the trust with a life partner, no matter, no matter who that is. And, and you obviously get to know them from time to time. And yet in a number of the instances we hear, you know, they notice the change in behavior and the person troubled by PTS over and over will say, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. And you kind of let it go. But what are, what are some of the symptoms that you see that somebody's struggling with PTS? Um, well, it's kind of an array, um, like a spectrum for, it's different for different people. Obviously we're all so different. So, um, some people it's as simple as I don't feel normal. I don't feel myself and you can't quite pinpoint a specific symptom. Um, and some people it's some of the things I named really, um, night terrors, um, not being able to carry out a job, a normal day-to-day job, um, hypervigilance, always worrying about, being under attack or safety or trust, things like that, in situations where other people would be able to feel more comfortable. So we always kind of have kind of felt in the museum here that the soldiers' battles really begin when they come home. And um, we we honestly believe the public has no idea what these guys are going and girls are going through and, um, you know, is there enough awareness out of there? Do you think the people are getting enough help? You know, I, I often kind of, you see a lot of groups trying to advocate for, you know, help PTS and raise money to create awareness. But ultimately, what does that do to help the veterans and, and the police officers and first responders? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there is more awareness. As time has gone on, there is more awareness, which is great. Um, do I think there's enough awareness? No, there's still so much stigma and it's so hard for someone to come forward and admit that there's something off with me. I'm struggling, especially in with veterans and first responders in the service field that we feel like we have to be the ones to help people. We can't be the broken. So that makes it exceptionally hard to um, be vulnerable because really essentially you're trained to not be vulnerable so I think that even more awareness is great. And then the more that we are talking about it and it's more accepted, then people could feel more comfortable to seek help. And Sierra, you know, a lot of people, you know, you see the outside scars or the outside wounds that people are usually more comfortable with and saying, hey, I'm hurt. You know, I have uh, a cut or I've been wounded or something like that. And you can medically take care of that. And, you know, some sort of doctor can put a bandage on it, do a surgery, something like that. Um, you know, why do you think there's a stigma around the mental health, the mental wounds versus the physical wounds, A, and then uh, not not just socially, but, um, you know, uh, but also professionally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, it's just people have a harder time when you don't physically see it. That when you see like someone has cancer, then you bake them a cake, you show up, you ask them what they need. But with mental illness, that it's definitely not the same. We've come a long way. But when you don't see it, people have a hard time understanding that it's there. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there and greatly impacting someone's life. Um, 
What was your other? Yeah, so how do, how do we kind of get rid of the stigma both socially and professionally? And what I mean by that is socially, you know, I've, I've heard that a lot of people are just afraid to say, hey, I'm struggling or, and you kind of mentioned this a minute ago, but, you know, I'm struggling, uh, you can't see this, but, uh, and it's affecting me and I don't know how to, I don't know how to tell you that it's affecting me. Um, so it affects your friend groups or your family, uh, interactions and things like that. And then secondly, professionally, Mm -hmm. you know, if your boss can't see that you're sick, you know, how do, you know, how can you, um, overcome that stigma and be treated and be treated fairly in that treatment? Yeah, I think um, personally I know more about um, law enforcement in that culture. So I think the way that law enforcement has been working with that is um, peer support programs. So people feel more comfortable coming out and talking to uh, a police officer enjoys, well not enjoys, but feels more comfortable speaking to another police officer. Or um, a nurse would like to speak to another nurse, things like that. Uh, So I think that Awareness is helpful, but also knowing the right person is available. Knowing someone that kind of understands what you're describing makes someone more comfortable in coming forward with that. Um, Professionally, then, using that same approach, that if places of employment are offering things like peer support or knowing that when you have experienced something traumatic, instead of brushing it under the rug, approaching it and bringing the elephant in the room up to the front and noting what's going on instead of um, just saying that it's not there because that really seems to make the problem worse. Sierra, you said two things that I think is really important there. We hear very often that the peer to peer is maybe the best therapy that veterans and probably police officers can have. And it it's great if we can facilitate those kind of, relationships. Uh, Oftentimes, if we're going to have a combat veteran in when we're doing a story, we'll invite a second combat veteran in and just kind of sit back and let them talk because we've learned that that is a healthy thing. Uh, But the peer-to-peer thing is important, I guess. The the other thing I want to ask you, and, 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 and I guess the question is, does it take real stress? You know, the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, you know, or is this is there stress caused by worrying that it could happen elsewhere? You get hyper hyper alert, fearing that this thing's happened. Is that kind of stress the same thing that can cause uh, these uh, stressors to kind of kick in with police officers? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because I have clients that will come in and say they'll describe some of these symptoms from PTSD. But then they'll say, well, I haven't experienced this one traumatic event. I d- haven't had this life-changing event, so I shouldn't be sick. I shouldn't be experiencing this. But even in the definition of PTSD, it can be several smaller events compounded together. It can be smaller events that may not even seem traumatic at the time, but it's the way that your brain isn't able to process it and put it away like it should, that it kind of sticks around. It's really just the nature of the human brain. The other thing I thought that you said was, it was kind of an important thing that we often hear when veterans hang up the uniform for the first time and probably very much like the police department that it's, they're entering a different world completely. You know, you don't have your combat buddies, the people you're on duty with all the time. So it's just, it's a hard first day. And many of our veterans come out and they enter the civilian world and 
a lot of companies talk about hiring veterans and and it's a good thing to do. You know, some of them do that, but you talked about employee help at these companies and and that's flipping the coin over you might say and and I got to say that it really should be considered a prerequisite that if you're going to hire a lot of veterans that you're in tune to, you know, make sure you do provide the help when you see the symptoms. Yeah, I totally agree that if you are getting in the field of working with people who have had a really high stress career in the past, that you should be able to show that you're prepared to um, support your employees in case the stress has not been fully dealt with. I think that's really important that your employees know that they know where to go in case something's wrong. They know they start to recognize the early signs instead of letting it build up for a long time. I think that plays a big role is early intervention. Um, I think it's really important for people to know kind of who they work for and who works for them. Well, I guess that begs the question, does our human resources people in those companies understand, you know, the veterans or the police officers, whoever the employees are, that, you know, PTSD can be an issue? Or are they more conditioned to deal with day-to-day things that and not those kind of stressors for our veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But then also, like we were talking about earlier, then it makes this the stigma so big that they have this fear to come forward and say, I have PTSD or I've struggled with this or I still have nightmares, things like that, in fear of then maybe they don't want to hire me. Maybe they aren't willing to admit that they're prepared to have an employee who still has struggles. We're gonna, that's a great point. The um, you you hear from a lot of our military that they're struggling. Maybe they go into reserve unit, but they they are deemed non-promotable because they fess up to a, a little bit of weakness. And uh, so, of course, the reaction is to withdraw and not talk about that, which is probably the worst thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've heard we've heard stories before where people have reported something um, stress related or. Um, things are going through and, you know, they were, they were, uh, their career was at risk. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, made decisions that negatively impacted their life. So, you know, um, I'm not sure, you know, what the current situation is with law enforcement or first responders or the, or, or military when it comes to reporting that. But we have heard stories in the past that uh, careers were in jeopardy over disclosing that. So they, they ended up hiding it, you know. The um, the other thing that it seems like as we build awareness for this, and certainly in the combat soldiers returning from Iraq, Afghanistan, and other other areas, that it just seems that it seems like a, a more PTS cases to us. Now, I'm guessing it's because it wasn't reported as frequently, but I also feel like you know the the combatants over there the people that were fighting the american troops they were far less civilized and they didn't value life as much as we did you didn't know friend and foes you didn't know um, and of course children they were warned of children carrying backpacks you know into a compound or something so do you, what do you think about the reporting do you think there's more cases of it now yeah, and and I'm asking too about the police ranks because certainly the school shootings get so much publicity anymore. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. 
I think there is um, a lot more traumatic events in the world as we know it now than there used to be, but also just modern uh, media access to that, that you can have PTSD from not even firsthand experiencing that. So you can still be traumatized by the media. And if you were in combat, but something happened to the guy next to you, but not directly to you, that's still traumatizing. Um, But then also, like you had mentioned in the beginning, just the numbers, the willingness to say that something is wrong. I think all of those numbers are probably really low. I think more people have started reporting than they used to, but I think they're probably still low. And I know looking at those statistics specifically that it says that somewhere around twice as often women report PTSD than men. But is that even an accurate number? Or are women just a little bit more likely to admit that they're having these mental health issues than men? I don't know. And Sierra, with like the like you were talking about with the media, like the twenty four hour news cycles and the social media platforms, do you find, or is it your experience that you um, would see PTS uh, rise up in in specifically like police officers or first responders um, because uh, it might create fear of all the eyes on them or what if they make one mistake or things like that or a perceived mistake? Yeah, just because um, more pressure and with body cams and things like that, you're always under a microscope. So yeah, I think that just the idea of perfection, striving for perfection and doing the right thing and things like that add more stress. So it can make a traumatic situation even more traumatic, even more stressful than if we didn't have 24-7 footage of everything. One of the things that we find, too, is when people talk about PTS, they think of boots on the ground. And um, I mentioned earlier, you know, the police force and, and soldiers that never actually set foot in a country. But the stressors is what causes this. Um, even your nine eleven workstation, you know, they've got to at one point say, you know, this is this is stressing me and suffer from that. Um, I heard a story not long back where a, a gentleman, a, a soldier, one of our Blue Star mothers, her her son flies a drone, an armed drone, and he'll watch it into the target and watch a civilian or a combatant, he doesn't know which, you know, into the building. And, you know, he's wondering whether he killed a combatant or a civilian. So there's other stressors. And it's not necessarily those that are on the front line with the police department. Your 911 operators, I suspect that they can only do so much of that. And then non-combatants, do you see that across the board with people not on the front line? Yeah, I. Um, what specifically comes to mind is um, like a firefighter saying that, well, I was on the truck, but I'm the, I drive the truck. I don't put the fire out. And then the fire causes catastrophe. Then it's almost, I mean, you could argue that it's more traumatizing that I wasn't able to even try to help these people. So I think that that helpless feeling whenever we're in the business of serving could also be more harmful than the ability to try and help. So even people like in the military that go overseas, but they're not the direct boots on the ground, you might feel more weight that you're carrying because you aren't out there with your brothers and sisters you 
feel more weight of yourself that you're carrying because you can't help. Well, that's a great point because um, we kind of a little bit called survivor's guilt kind of ties in with that. Um, we've learned a story from one of our woman veterans in the, in the museum where the she got medevaced to Germany and the next day her squad got hit. And of course she wasn't there, you know, so that I'm sure is, uh, you know, you don't have to again, be there, but, um, you know, so it's, um, the other thing you mentioned too, that I want to kind of point out is if we've read that, you know, women in the military are five times more likely to su- suffer from a uh, sexual assault, you know, so there's a stressor too. Uh, we know of one woman in our museum here that she was on her first deployment, she was sexually assaulted. And then she went to Iraq and experienced a few close calls and then survivor's guilt. And, you know, so it's, um, Stressors come in all different forms. Civilians, you know, the military and the police all feel these stressors. And, uh, you know, you find yourself counseling probably civilians, police officers, stressors, you know, all of them at one time or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another thing that I uh, was a police officer and I'm married currently to a police officer. So kind of seen both sides of that coin because going through school and the police academy, things like that, working at police departments, that they train you how to handle yourself. And um, hopefully they tell you if you need help, if you're struggling, these are avenues that you take. But really, whoever teaches the spouse how to be a spouse of a service person, I don't, I don't know. How do you deal with that stress when you're at home wondering if your loved one is okay and if they're coming back, things like that? They don't go to an academy on how to live through that hard time. So you you mentioned the the spouse and and kind of want to elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, take it even further, like to families with children or people that live in the same household. Is it beneficial or even appropriate to um, you know meet with the person that might have PTS and their close family group so that they can work things out? and understand each other just a little bit better on how to maybe live together um, more, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but more cohesively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it really depends on each individual person and how they um, grow and how they really develop best because some people, they really want to focus on it individually. Myself, I want to get through this a little bit. Um, And they, some people can feel that guilt of, I'm dragging my family down because I'm struggling. So a lot of them like to be independent maybe in the beginning and then include their family. But I do think that including a family at some point is really important because um, outside of when you served, then you still are a husband, a wife, a daughter, a dad, a mom, you know, any of it. So that's still very important to living your life. Well, that's a very good point that you made because I, I know my son-in-law went into police work and when shortly before he was hired or after he was hired, they brought in my daughter and they counseled her on every bit of four hours on what it's like to be married to a police officer. And somehow the more you learn about it, that seems woefully inadequate you know, <laughs> that you're going to teach them all this in four hours, number one. But the other thing um, 
in our bookstore here at the museum, we got a couple books on, you know, their children's book that says, why is daddy angry? And probably the, the, you know, the kids notice this stuff, don't they? They do really kids almost notice things that you are trying to bottle up. They notice those things even more often that, uh, you don't think that they're noticing instead of you verbalizing it. Kids often notice what is not being verbalized. Do they, the kids sometimes start to feel like they can't do anything right. You know, they, they did something terribly wrong when yeah. it was probably a little mischief they were in. Yeah. Or they often put the blame on themselves that, um, it's my fault that daddy's mad all the time or just always trying to turn it around. Oftentimes kids think cause their world is so small, you know, when they're younger that they think that it has to be something within their household that the, the problem is a result of. So if, if, if we recognize that there's this trauma going on in the family, do we take it down to the level and bring in the family on a regular basis? Because frankly, I guess you can raise your kids up and they never ever figure out what was going on. Yeah, I think it really just depends. There's so many different moving parts. There's so many factors. So um, can people without counseling still grow up and be functioning and happy and successful? Sure. Um, could people do family counseling and find success? Sure. Could they all do individual or only one person in the family? I mean, yes, really. But it just depends on each specific circumstance and the needs of that individual and their family to kind of just make all the puzzle pieces fit. You know, we've, we've noticed that, or we've, we've heard that Missouri has a very high uh, suicide rate. Can you, do you have any feedback around that or can you give us enlighten us a little bit about what the statistics might be or how or why that could be um, the case? Or if not, you know, how do we know, um, you know, how, I guess, how do we know that, uh, or how can we fix that, I guess? Yeah, I um, heard that statistic, and I'm not really sure. I That kind of surprised me because I don't really know what that could be a result of. Um, I don't know, because we're such a rural state outside of Kansas City and St. Louis, that maybe it's resources or accessibility to resources. Um, I'm not really sure, or just because we are so rural for the most part, that there's still that stigma, you know, that there's a lot less modern thinking of that this is kind of normal and going to get help should be normalized. So some of the stories, that when, we, when we talk to veterans, some of the stories I get, by the time a story for a veteran comes in here, it's almost old news, right? They served 10, 15 years ago. Some of them are still serving in the guard or something like that. But the combat veterans, many of them have been out a while. And uh, so I'm kind of prefacing this comment with, you know, I hope that it's changed. But an example was Angela that, that while she was in Germany after being medevac, she went into a psychiatrist's office, said, I need help. I'm having, I'm tr- struggling with all this. She had, one of her guys were down, was severely uh, wounded. He was going to make it, but um, she wasn't there. And the first thing they did was prescribe drugs. And at one point, she was on 18 different drugs. And that, of course, was the VA hospital's way of treating Angela. Mm-hmm. 
and Angela contends to this day, you know, I was normal and you chose to treat me with drugs. Um, you know, if I didn't feel that way about one of my guys being hurt, I wouldn't be normal and you chose to medicate me. So I don't know if you have any, um, any, anything you can tell us about what you hear about what the VA is doing or what the police department's doing. Are they prescribing drugs? You know, how, what's the method of choice nowadays? Well, the first thing that came to mind from what you said is that I often hear that um, trauma is just a normal reaction to an abnormal event. So really, it's very normal. If you see all of these abnormal things, experience that, it's really normal. Like you said, um, it's really how our brains are put together to function. It's a safety mechanism because we know we shouldn't be experiencing some of the things that we are experiencing. Um, as for medication, I don't really know. It's probably 50-50. A lot of people go to a psychiatrist or their uh, primary care doctor and get on medication. Some people find it really helpful. Some people don't. There are a lot of people that just don't want to jump in that, don't want to try it because you it's the unknown, you know. I'm not really sure, but um, I know some people that have found it really helpful and some people that steer clear of it. So somebody said to me a while back, and he took exception to the PTS, the D, the letter D in PTSD, and he said it's a disorder, I, I think is the word that D stands for most of the time, and he took issue with it saying it's not a disorder, you know, and he preferred that we called it PTS. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I know that clinically it is PTSD is the full um like the correct term. So that's kind of what I'm used to saying, expressing. But I know that I understand people don't like the word disorder because it's, I mean, really has a pretty negative connotation also. Um, But we were kind of talking earlier about whether PTSD, is it ongoing? When you get help, is it over? Are you fixed? Um, If you experience something slightly traumatic because you've already had PTSD in the past? Is it going to be the one thing that sends you over the edge? Are you like a clean slate per se whenever you do get help? Or are you already working with a cup that's pretty full that might overflow? So I don't know. I don't know if it's one of those things that you, if you've had PTSD, that you, you're cured of it or that once you've had PTSD, it's just something you know, that you'll carry for the rest of your life. I know the trauma you experience, you'll carry for the rest of your life. It's all memories that when you get help, you just put it away where it belongs, but that doesn't mean that it ever goes away. It's just a part of you. So would you say getting the tools to work through that or to mitigate the effects are are what you're saying? So maybe not ever having that it goes away, but that you have tools to be able to deal with it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, I'm actually EMDR certified, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it uses eye movements similar to what happens when you're sleeping to kind of process traumatic events in a normal way like our brains normally do when you're sleeping uh, to put it away. So whenever I do EMDR with my clients, that memory will never go away. But it's just desensitized, like in the name, to where you're not triggered. You don't have that hypervigilance. You have the ability to get 
restful sleep at night. So just because it's still a memory, it's still a part of you, that you can still go back and live a fulfilling life. Is that kind of a cutting edge, newer treatment now? Or is how long has that been around? Um, I'm pretty sure it was developed or the understanding of it came around in the 80s. But I think it is more contemporary how often people use it. But it is scientifically proven. So um, a lot of people I know come into counseling and they're like, I don't want to try any of this random stuff that hasn't been tested or proven. But EMDR has been proven and it's backed and so many people that have experienced trauma find it incredibly life-changing. So when you mentioned that you can kind of put it away once you use the EMDR, is that help people say with someone that might have flashbacks? Is that the kind of thing that would help uh, put something like that away to, so it's not triggering? Yeah, I use the term put it away. And whenever I use EMDR with my clients, I like to explain it to them like, Um, imagining a wall full of filing cabinets, and that's kind of our brains, our filing system. But then this one traumatic event is in its folder, sticking out of the file. So you can't close the file, and it's always open, or the papers are sticking out of the file all in a mess. And it's just always kind of nagging you. It's always there in the front of your brain. It's sitting there. You can't close the file. So then EMDR kind of helps to arrange the papers in a clean fashion. It helps to close the file and you can close the drawer completely. So it's, it will always be there. Like I said, that memory. So that file will always be a part of your entire wall of files, but you can close the drawer all the way. Oh, that's very good. So I read not long back that Missouri's trying to make certain drugs legal, hallucinogenic drugs and treatment for veterans, and, and they're reporting some pretty good things with that. I can't recall which drugs they are. Do you know anything about those drugs? Um, I've done some reading on that, and I found it really interesting because that does seem pretty left field, kind of out of nowhere. Um, but some people really believe that it's helpful, but I personally, I don't know very much about it. And I know that it is controversial, So that's one thing that I like about EMDR is that it's not controversial. It doesn't have negative effects on people. It's usually very helpful. Good. The, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, is, um, you know, sometimes we have veterans come into the museum and, and, um, you know, we give kind of a tour that, that kind of is uh, almost develops into a routine and we tell stories We've actually watched, we've actually talked to some of our veterans where they've actually had to turn around and leave. And sometimes I feel this guilt that maybe I shouldn't have talked about that, you know, but, um, and and we do see and have the experience of people walking into the museum and and literally turning around and, and not going in. And then we have other people that come to the museum and they felt comfortable being in this environment. So... Do you have any any ideas on how volunteers can better handle our guests in here not to cause more stress or trauma? Yeah, I think um, what you're describing isn't any fault of yours, really, or any of the volunteers that because people are so different and unique in how they handle trauma and really also what is triggering to them. And also if people are getting help, where they are in that journey. Because if you're early on, 
then lots of things like being in the museum might be a little much and it might remind you of a lot of things that you haven't dealt with. But for some other people, this might feel comforting. The whole peer support like we were talking about earlier and feeling like relatable. So then a veteran might enjoy coming here and feeling like they can relate to other stories or run into someone else here and tell their story even. So we're talking about treatment, you know, do you, in the police field, you obviously, you know, counsel a number of police officers, first responders and that. Do you think we're making some headway with treatment, getting people to treatment? You know, because in the back of my mind, I feel like we're really not getting the veterans coming forward to seek the treatment. And I'm, I guess I'm hoping it's a little bit better in, in the law enforcement first responder line of business. I think um, a lot of that has to do with perception also that um, me having been an advocate for mental health and wellness for how long that um, whenever I first said I wanted to be a counselor and I wanted to counsel police officers, other people told me, good luck, no one's going to come. Um, but I think whenever people see kind of your attitude towards it and that it's okay, it's acceptable, there isn't stigma, that then people gravitate towards you. So I think there's kind of this, it's all under the rug. And if you're one of us, quote unquote, then maybe I can trust you. So maybe I can come forward. So I think that there's more people coming forward than the general public knows. Because even if you come forward, it's not, we're not at a point in society to where it's paraded. Like we talked about earlier, you have cancer and I'm going to I'm going to call everybody and I'm going to post on Facebook and I'm going to say we all need to rally together. But mental health, we're not there. We're nowhere near there to where, oh, well, so-and-so just got diagnosed with PTSD. We need to rally. We need to be there for him. We need to make sure he's got all the support he needs. We're just not there, sadly. So I think we're moving in that direction to where there is more awareness and there is more acceptance, but there's just a long way to go. Sierra, you were a O'Fallon Police Department, and then you were the county police department, and you're still a pretty young woman. My guess is you saw a need and moved in that direction. Can you explain why you did what you did? Yeah, I um, pretty early on in being a police officer, I went to the CIT training, so crisis intervention, and um, a lot of it is teaching you how to deal with people in the public who are in mental health crises, but um, a portion of it was also officer wellness. And I really just became really passionate about it and seeing that it is kind of brushed under the rug. It is kind of, we turn a blind eye that we don't want to talk about it. And we if we don't talk about it, then maybe it's not there. So I just kind of ran with it. Like I wanted to spread the word. I wanted to be that person. Even if I was only one of how many police officers that people knew that they could call in the, in the middle of the night, you could reach out, you could tell me all of your struggles, but know that I was going to help you as best I could, that that was the person I wanted to be. I just have a quick question about uh, self-medicating. Um, do you notice a lot of self-medicating in uh, you know, in your line of work when it comes to first responders and maybe any veterans that you might have um, interacted with? And, you know, how do you help someone move away from self-medicating to um, healing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's definitely quite a bit of it. 
And what's surprising is that I see often just as much, I guess, people doing the opposite, that they would normally have a couple beers on a Friday night, but because they feel off, they feel like something's wrong, that they're, I'm not going to drink. So then I'm not going to go hang out with my friends. I'm not going to do these things because they're so strict on trying to not self-medicate, which I think might be just as harmful too, that you should try and stick with who you really are and the things you used to enjoy. That's a lot. The goal of counseling is to find enjoyment in the things that you used to enjoy. Um, Kind of getting past self-medicating whenever it kind of blows up into um, an addiction. There are counselors that specifically focus on addiction and they're very good at it. Um, Because also if you are using substances, self-medicating, it makes it really hard to go through counseling and to kind of be vulnerable and be your true self whenever you are self-medicating. So, Sierra, I guess the last questions I want to, and I'm, and we kind of talked about this, but I want to make sure people hear it again. So we kind of all talked about it, and we agree that you don't have to be in a stressful, traumatic situation to have PTS. And, um, and, and that's probably something that people are confused somewhat about. But the last thing I want to ask you is remind us again, what would family members start to notice in somebody that's, that's struggling with PTSD? Yeah, um, one thing you mentioned earlier, too, was anger. That's often a frequent first response. Um, just getting angry at a lot of different things. And in counseling, we like to talk about the anger iceberg to where really the anger that you're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the part that you're seeing, but it's not really the problem. So that's really common. Um, Depression, anxiety, not enjoying things that you used to enjoy like hobbies, not being social, so isolation. Um, Just really what I tell spouses that I do see is just if they are different. But different, like not in a good way, oh, they're different, they seem really happy. Like family members usually can tell they're different, but they don't feel content. They don't feel fulfilled. They can usually tell that about your loved one, that um, something is just off. Well, my guess it would take a lot of of love for a spouse to say, look, we're going to do this or Mm -hmm. we're going to seek treatment because – I would say that the person' natural inclination is deny they've got a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So it takes a strong spouse probably to get them into treatment. Mm-hmm. And being persistent because the first time that you mention it, if this person isn't willing to admit to themselves that something is off, then they might come back at you with even more anger. It might kind of exacerbate some of the problems that you're noticing. So for that spouse or parent or child to just try and be consistent and come from a loving place, which I know that I'm sure they are, of just understanding that it's a really hard thing to admit to yourself that things are different. So what else What else do you think is important for our listeners to hear, Sierra? Um, I think it's just important to spread awareness. I thank you for having me here and kind of talking about mental health. I think the more that we talk about it and it's kind of a, a buzzword, but in a, a good way that people are staying educated and learning about resources and things like that, then hopefully the stigma will just continue to lessen. Um, also, I would just say that if you are 
experiencing PTSD, depression, anxiety, that you're not alone. I know that the illness itself can kind of trick you to believe that you are alone and this is only happening to you and not other people around you, but it really happens to a lot of people in the service field. So it's important to get help. Well, it's been a good conversation, Sierra and Jim. Thank you so much, uh, Sierra, for coming into the studio today to record uh, with us. Could you please tell the listeners how we can get a hold of you and where you're located? Yeah, so once again, uh, I'm Sierra Kester, and I am actually working out of Christian Counseling Connection in Lake St. Louis. Um, We do have a website, and it's got my picture on there and a link to sign up. Uh, It's also got a little bio about me in case anybody wants to get to know a little bit more of my background. I know you guys shared a little bit of that. Um, Our phone number, if you want to just call and talk to our admin, they can get you set up or answer any questions, 636-442-2612. And then also if you want to send me an email, that my email is Sierra, S-I-E-R-R-A dot Kester, K-O-E-S-T-E-R, at ChristianCounselingConnection.com. So, of course, I always like networking too. So if you want to reach out and just um, any feedback from the podcast or questions, things like that, then feel free. Awesome. Uh, we really appreciate you again for being in studio. And uh, thank you, Jim, uh, for uh, you know asking some great questions. We're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesriatallstate.com, R-E-N-E-E. E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The dog tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. We're very proud of a local partner headquartered here in St. Peter's, Missouri. Wright Construction Services is licensed in 22 states, serving the commercial, industrial construction industry, and general contracting and design build. What makes Wright unique and one of our favorite partners is their strong commitment of giving back. Once again, in 2022, Wright will host their Building Changes 4th Annual 22 Strong event on Saturday, September 24th, 2022. The number 22 is significant to the event because it represents the 22 veterans who lose their lives to suicide every day. The virtual 22-day challenge will take place September 3rd through 24th, 2022. The goal of each of these events is to raise awareness and funds for organizations dedicated to eliminating veteran suicide. The challenge is simple. 
Walk 22 miles to benefit veterans at the local and national level. In 2022, Building Change will offer their popular 22-day virtual challenge, a 22-mile in-person walk, and a 2.2-mile in-person walk. Would you like to help walk or become a sponsor? For more information about the 22 Strong program, visit www.rightconstruct.com slash giving dash back. That's www.wrightconstruct.com slash giving dash back. Join us next week on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum when our guest will be Misty Bloom. Misty's husband, Michael, served his country in the United States Marines for 20 years, including four tours of duty in Iraq. When U.S. soldiers were deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq, more service members are dying at home than at war. Every day, 22 veterans lose their battle to post-traumatic stress on American soil. That is one veteran every 65 minutes. For most combat veterans, the toughest battle begins when they come home. Michael lost his battle September 15, 2013. Next week in the studio will be Michael's wife, Misty Bloom. Misty has become a writer and advocate dedicated to veteran PTS, suicide prevention, and awareness.